Hello everyone, this episode of Inside Jobs will introduce you to an extremely organised creative enabler who has really seen the world and understands what culture, with a big C and a small c, really means. Uh, handling in-house agency talent is no small task when your employer is the 36th largest US business with, according to Wikipedia, a higher credit rating than the US government. Regular listeners will know that Inside Jobs, presented by me, Robert Barclay, is designed specifically to connect creatives, creative leaders, and those who work in and around in-house agencies. It's brought to you by IHAF, the leading professional association for in-house agencies, along with EKCS, who let creative teams focus on what they do best by handling their asset production. So, Carrie Roberts, a very warm welcome to Inside Jobs. Uh, now, I see from your LinkedIn profile that you describe yourself as a firefighter, a detective, a bodyguard, a therapist, a mother, negotiator, mechanic, juggler, peacekeeper, cat herder and referee. Carrie, which one of those is your favourite job? Uh, thanks for having me, first of all. I would say that my favourite job, uh, both at work and at home, is mother. Um, I, call my, <laughs> I call my work people my children too, so um, definitely the role that I feel kind of encompasses my my in and out of work time. So we're going to talk about how you got to this amazing role you have. I haven't yet said for whom you work, but could you outline, first of all, what your main responsibility is and what you, what you do day to day, Carrie? So I work for Johnson & Johnson Design. We are the internal design team for all of Johnson & Johnson globally. Um, my role is um, on the design operations team. And specifically, I support talent operations, resource management, and project management. Okay, sounds kind of organized, all that stuff. So uh, so we want to find out, are you really an organized person? Tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you're from. Sure. I think um, I was an organized person kind of as I was born. So my mom tells a story that um, when I was about three or four and I was just learning the alphabet, my favorite things to do was to go in her pantry and organize the pantry. So uh, one day I would alphabetize it, one day I would organize it by color, <laughs> one day I would organize it by size. And so if, if she ever couldn't find me, I was probably hiding in the pantry organizing. I'm guessing she found this a little bit unusual. Did she go and tell you to untidy your room then? <laughs> well, of course, all of my stuffed animals were also organized by uh, size or family or group. Um, so that's something that kind of has... Uh, stuck with me today. So if you see my pantry, uh, it looks very much like home edit. What did you what did you study? And uh, and how did you fall into uh, to this world of creative operations and design? I, I want to know specifically if you're a designer, of course, but but do tell. Sure. So um, well, first to answer your question about uh, if I'm a designer, I never actually thought that I was. And that always kind of bummed me out a little bit because I've always supported creative people, but never thought about myself as such. But Someone recently pointed out to me that what we do in creative operations is service and system design. So I do feel a little bit better about that. My uh, So I started out my sort of college um, and higher education plans thinking that I would be an architect. I went to school at the University of Colorado, and I actually did really love the creative part of it. I loved the feel of vellum. I loved choosing which type of pencil that I would use. <laughs> Sounds kind of crazy, right? I'm not you know, saying a word. <laughs> the weight of the pencil. And I also loved that when you write titles in architecture, all the letters have to stay within the lines. Um, and I just thought that that was really beautiful. And I wanted to design, you know, beautiful kind of 
elegant buildings like Frank Gehry and Zaha Hadid. And my second year of college, I had a professor and I told him that. And he said to me, well, you know, you're never going to do that. You're just going to design big square office buildings and you're going to spend all of your days figuring out how many exits and how many bathrooms it needs. And maybe I caught him on a bad day, but... Not very um, inspiring, Professor. No, not very inspiring. But that conversation, for better or for worse, changed the sort of course of my life and my career. So I took a little break from school to kind of figure out what I was going to do because I didn't want to spend my whole life not only designing big square office buildings, but also it was the time when sort of AutoCAD was really taking off and, you know, plotting lines and XY coordinates was not really my thing. I liked the creative feel of it. So I decided to go backpacking through Europe for a couple of months um, just to sort of see the world and experience life. Um, I decided to stay there. I found a university in London called Surrey Institute of Art and Design. So not afraid to leave home and, uh, and travel around? Okay. No, nope. I definitely was just, you know, off on my way. My parents thought I was a little bit nuts, but um, that was only the first of many times they would think that. Uh, so I stayed there. Um, I studied um, fashion marketing. So thinking that I would produce um, fashion shows and runway shows. So um, I've sort of always had this thing about, you know, bringing kind of creative visions to life. And so I thought that I would go in and help designers kind of showcase their work. After a few times working in the fashion world, I decided maybe those weren't really my people. Um, so I sort of transitioned into producing live events. So I produced... Oh, do you want to be any ruder about why they weren't your people <laughs> or should we gloss over that? No, I'm just going to gloss over that. Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. So go on. Events. Um, so I started getting into um, event production and music production. So still producing live experiences. And my first job um, was with a um, British woman in L.A. Um, I've always had a thing for Brits, I guess, since I lived there. That's totally understandable, by the way. <laughs> yeah, they are lovely people. So and, you know, I was assistant art director to her. She would come up with these ideas and she would turn to me and say, OK, Carrie, how do we make this happen? And I feel like that was really the start of my creative operations career was having a so, creative so person you know, present me an idea or challenge or problem to solve, and I would go and solve it. So so let's say you started, so you, you had told me earlier, you were born in California, Yeah. went to Colorado, then you came to the UK. Now you're back in LA, all right? And uh, you're really starting to get on the on the rails of what it is you think you want to do, which is which is enabling people creatively, correct? That's, you know, correct. let them have, have their, their lovely, crazy ideas, and you can bring them to life. Is that right? Yes. So, so tell us about some of the projects you worked on then. So my very first project that I worked on was the launch of Xbox. Um, oh, just, so, just that. Okay. <laughs> a tiny, you know, little small, sure. small budget. Yeah. So we produced the press events and also the big launch kind of gala in LA. So, you know, no small thing. Um, the band Garbage performed. They were the headliner. Um, we rented out, you know, a, a big hotel it, in downtown LA and um, it was a great first kind of jumping off point to say it certainly was um wow you know and here i was in my early 20s having technical directors and stylists and producers coming to me asking me what to do next any kind of imposter syndrome going on there because i know i would have felt it we we <laughs> did you just get on with it i just I just sort of got on with it. I mean, I think my approach to things has always been, you know, if someone says can you do this? I'm like, yes, i can and i will go figure out how to do that and 
um, you know, do the best they can. So yeah, no, fantastic. A, a little bit of maybe naive fearlessness. Um, you didn't stay in LA though, right? You went, you went over to New York. How, how did that come about? So I was um, after a couple of years in LA and uh, just, you know, wanted to sort of see what else was out there and then said, they were glad up to this point, were they? They thought this is good. She's, she's building a career. She's yep. in LA. Everything's fine. Nothing to worry about. Right. I stayed there for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, I had a few introductions that people had set up for me. And so I went and met a few people, found an why, apartment. Why, why didn't you want to build on what you had started in LA then? What, surely that could have afforded you an opportunity to get over there. Why did you just kind of jack it all in? Um, I don't know, actually. I just, like, I didn't like the hustle of it, I guess. Um, you know, I was kind of working a freelance life and it was always, so in between working for this amazing art director, I was producing commercials and being a stylist assistant and I worked on a film um, as a art director or assistant art director and just kind of filling, you know, some music videos. Uh, Sounds great <laughs> to me. <laughs> Okay, so what happened when you got to New York then? I mean, uh, you did find stability, I know. Yeah, I had a friend that um, introduced me to somebody at Paper Magazine, and I went and talked to them, and they said, well, you're a little over... That's, that's like a design and creative magazine, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So they said, well, you know, you're a little overqualified to be an intern, but you can intern with us, and, you know, we'll help you find a job and introduce you to some people and things. You know, about a month after I started, the marketing assistant, she left and they offered me the job. So I was um, promotions and marketing assistant. And, you know, it was a crazy place to work at the time. It was really at the height of it. So this was, what, 2005 or something, wasn't uh, it, around then? Yes, early. Yeah, 2003, yeah, 2005. Early 2000s. Okay. Went to all kinds of crazy events, met all kinds of crazy musicians and artists and um, just sort of learned my way around New York, which was great because I didn't know anybody. Networking like crazy, obviously. Networking like crazy, um, which actually then brought me to my next job. Um, and there was a owner of a company called GenArt, and they are an they were an organization that uh, produces events for emerging talent in film, fashion, music, and art. And um, they had uh, office in LA and they did some events in LA and I had gone to some of their events. And when I was thinking about moving to New York, I was sending the owner my resume to try to like figure out what I was going to do here. And he just ignored me, you know, would never respond to me. But at a party one night, I saw him and I went up to him and I said, I have been sending you my resume for the last few years. And no getting away. Yeah. <laughs> I said, time. I'm here now. I'm in New York. And I would really like to work for you. I'm really inspired by the mission of what you do. Um, would it be okay if I send you my resume and, and we could meet? And so the next time I sent him my resume, he took my email and called me back. And we had a great conversation. And um, he offered me a job. What a difference it can make sometimes to actually buttonhole someone, right? Face yes. to face. Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. So you so you're at GenArt and doing events, and uh, where did that take you next? Um, so I was there for a couple of years, and about five years or so, and um, sort of similar. I don't know. I guess sort of similar outcome was um, I had a friend that worked at a creative agency called Exposure. Um, again, it's a British company, but with a U.S. outpost. And my friend that worked there um, would call me a lot and ask me for advice about, you know, things they were doing or producing events or, you know, did I know anybody who could help with this or whatever? And I, 
you know, for a while, I kind of gave them free advice. And then at one point, I said to the uh, president of the company, I said, you know, if you keep calling me, you're going to have to hire me. Um, they said, okay, let's do it. Was there a plan here, Carrie? Uh, you know, the way you're moving from job to job at this point, you know, it's a good cadence every five years or so. Yeah. Did you kind of know where you were heading? Or did you just kind of work with this was the next shiny thing sort of thing? No, I think, um, no, I didn't really have a plan at, at that po- point. I just, I think my approach to my career has always been to take the opportunity when it presents itself. And well, when I s- no, because you're actually telling me two occasions well, here where you are creating the opportunity and then taking it. All full of surprise. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. But you're actually true. setting it all up, right? You're very kind of, um, what's the word they use these days? Intentional, it seems, about this. Far from waiting for, you know, like Kairos, the god of, you know, waiting for it to kind of come past. You're actually making these opportunities happen, right? It's true. It's a good, um, it's a good point. It's, Yes, creating the opportunities that I, I want to go after and, and, you know, sort of seeing that as the next challenge in my career. Um, and something that kind of, you know, will keep me motivated and learning, um, and sort of expanding what I can do. Okay. So you got headhunted, right? So while I was at exposure, I'll, before I go into the headhunted, um, I think the turning point at while I was at exposure was, um, that's sort of where I made the transition from producer to creative services. So when I joined, it was small, maybe less than 10 people. And, you know, after a few years there, we were really growing. And so they asked me to lead and start up the creative services department. So in addition to being head of production there, I was also starting the creative services division, um, getting more sort of formally, I guess, into that creative operations world. And is this a, would you say this is a wider remit or just a different remit? It was definitely a wider remit. So, um, you know, at that point, my responsibility was not only overseeing the production team, but starting to understand, okay, how do I take these creative visions and bring them to life, managing the budgets, putting in some process and systems into the way we are working, because as a company starts to grow, they understand that they need, you know, a little bit of more order and, and process into how they do things so that they can be scalable. So process and systems and budgets, this is this is you allowing people to be creative by handling the stuff that creatives, with a few exceptions, are not normally renowned for wanting to focus on. Let's just try and put it like that. Correct. This is stuff that you kind of innately had buttoned down, right? I mean, I presume you'd learned along the way, but you really felt this was core to you. You aren't, this is kind of your, this is your world, right? Yeah. And this is where I think like the bodyguard piece of my job kind of comes in is like protecting them, sort of clearing the way for them to do the great work and to come up with all the great, amazing ideas that they have. And don't worry about how it gets done. And don't worry about how to license that or, you know, get that contract done or, or hire these people. I will take care of all of that. Or my, you know, myself and my team will take care of those things. You do you, you be creative and, and we'll, you know, kind of clear the way. Okay. All right. So yes, we got that established and then someone comes knocking. Yep. So the opportunity, this one you didn't set up, right? (laughs) This one I did not set up. At least not directly, maybe indirectly, but not directly. So another British company, um, the the body shop. (laughs) You owe everything to us, Carrie. I do. I I know. The body shop called me and they said, um, we're sort of restarting the business in the U.S., uh, we need to build a team and rebuild the, the U.S. business from scratch. 
we have a this is after acquisition, right? They've uh, they been acquired at this point. So they had been acquired about ten years prior to that oh, okay. by L'Oreal, okay. but they hadn't really done anything about it. They had just let the business run as it was, um, and so they said, "We have a creative director, we have a managing director, and now you." <laughs> Like, would you like this opportunity? And, you know, I thought it was an amazing opportunity um, to be sort of a startup business funded by a big corporation like L'Oreal. Um, there was a very specific remit, which was, um, you know, turn the business around. It wasn't losing money, but it wasn't necessarily profitable. It wasn't operating um, as L'Oreal wanted it to be. Um, as one of its portfolio. And so we uh, really just kind of started up the business from scratch. Um, oh, how exciting is that? That's yeah. fantastic. So they brought me in as director of creative operations. Um, you know, we built myself and the creative director, built a creative team, established process, brought in tools and systems, um, and turned the business around into a profitable company for L'Oreal. Wow. So, but you were only there a couple of years. What happened? I was only there a couple of years. Um, I didn't know at the time that the reason they were trying to turn the business around is that they were trying to sell it. Um, and I didn't really know what the future was, whether I would stay with the company, the body shop, um, depending on who bought it, uh, or, you know, or if I was going to be out of a job. So I was kind of just rolling with it. Um, a lot of people left. A lot of people, L'Oreal people started going back to L'Oreal. Very unsettling. and Yeah, it was a little... Yeah, it was a little like nerve wracking, not knowing. But, you know, I thought that was sort of a comfort zone that I had. It's just, you know, not knowing and seeing where life takes me. And you have family at this point. We never asked about any of that. Oh. Do you have family at this point? I do. Yeah, I had while I was at Exposure, I had two two kids. So I. Um, oh, OK. So, you know, while this sort of unknown was happening, I got another phone call um, this time from Johnson & Johnson Design. Um, they reached out to me through their talent acquisition team. And the first time they called, I said, I don't think you have the right person. Like, I have no pharmaceutical background. You know, I, I, I couldn't really find anything out about the design team and what they did. And so I said, yeah, I, I don't think this is the job for me and <laughs> sort of sent them away. And then they came back again and they said, I really think that you should talk to the operations director. Just you know, let them talk to you and, and just listen. So I said, okay, you know, and I took the call with um, then the COO and uh, the director of operations, and they told me about the company and what they did. And, you know, the thing that I had seen in my career to date, I had done both, you know, sort of marketing and advertising agencies. And then I'd also worked for sort of more companies with a purpose like Gen Art and The Body Shop. And what I really saw about working at J&J and was that, there was really a purpose in what they did and, and a greater good that they were serving. So um, that kind of sold me on it. Um, and understanding that the designs that, that they were working on in, in the J&J design team were more about less, they don't do marketing and communications design and advertising. They're really about product and service design and thinking about how we can solve problems across the business using design. And how we um, can kind of create better experiences for patients and customers and healthcare providers. So that felt great to me. And so here I am. Um, August makes my five-year anniversary with them. 
Well, congratulations in in August on that. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, Johnson Johnson Design then. Uh, you mentioned that you're not working on the advertising, which many of the listeners uh, to Inside Jobs clearly are. But this this is more about product design. This is where a lot of people who work in in-house agencies would like to be or feel that they could contribute. Yeah. Very interesting. So so tell me how this actually works then. Let's describe the division before we get on to you personally, but just describe in the round the division, what it does and for whom it does it and how that kind of works. Sure. So um, Johnson Johnson Design supports the entire enterprise for Johnson & Johnson. So consumer, pharma, medical technology, global public health, and corporate brand. And what's super interesting to me about it is that there might be something that the pharmaceutical team is working on very similar to something that the self-care team is working on. And they would never really have the opportunity to speak or connect those dots. But we sort of being at the center of that, we kind of see everything that's happening across the business and, you know, can be the connector of a lot of people and ideas. So I, I love that part of it. Yeah. So you, you kind of know what tomorrow's news is today, really, in a way as well. Yes. So, so let's talk more specifically about your role then in this team. How big is it and what, what do you do in it? So the J&J design team, we, when I joined about five years ago, we're, we were about 100. Um, I think today we are a little over 200, about 220. Um, with all of our open roles that we have, we should be 300 by the end of this year. So we've grown. And, and where, why is that? So I know this is another question already, but why is that? What's happening kind of behind the scenes that's that's swelling this department when, when large corporations are trying to shed, you know, and shrink departments and cut spend? What's going on? Well, um, so J&J Design has been sort of part of J&J for about 15 years. Um, it started out as the Global Strategic Design Office, office and uh, about maybe seven years ago, changed to J&J Design. With, and so originally, we started just supporting consumer. Um, and then we sort of grew to other areas of the business, including pharma and med tech and, and global public health. And sort of, the, I guess, I would say that the good word has spread about the work that we do and about the impact design can have. And so every time, you know, we support one new business partner, they tell their colleagues. So um, it's not mandatory that the business works with us. It's encouraged that they do. And really, we're not an agency because we don't have this client agency relationship. We're a embedded partner. So we work very closely with our business partners. Um, they come to us with challenges that they're faced and how can dissolve design solve those problems. Um, but also we kind of see some opportunities for them to improve as well. And so, you know, it's a very sort of mutual relationship to say, you know, hey, we see this opportunity and maybe design can help solve this issue that we're facing. Now, this, this is what you're talking about here sounds quite easy to do in a relatively small environment, but this is a massive environment. How on earth do you make this happen? On a, And I have a best interest in asking this question, actually, but how do you scale up this kind of value-added relationship? Well, so that's really, um, you know, that's really part of my job. So um, my responsibility for in talent operations and resource management is that every new opportunity that comes into J&J Design, um, it's my job to work with the team to make sure that we have the right designers and the team in place to support those projects. And, you know, forecasting the work that's coming our way, what kind of capabilities do we need to grow? So, um, you know, we, we might need more product designers. Um, and we've seen that there's been a trend in sort of product design versus just UX, UI design. So 
we're doing a lot of hiring in that space. And so I'm kind of looking at the trends, what kind of projects are coming in, what type of talent do we need? How do we work within the market, which is, you know, right now a very talent driven market? How do we get the story out about J&J Design so that people don't have well, the same experience yes. that I had, which was, what, what's J&J Design? But, but you've got all of, these, all of this talent that you're managing and you're resourcing and making sure you've got the right people at the right time. Who, you don't have time to be interfacing with all your various uh, co-workers in the different parts of J&J. I don't, I don't know whether you call them clients or not, so I'm uh, kind yes, of using my we, words carefully there. But, but so, so how have you scaled that up as well? So we don't call them clients, we call them business partners. Um, and within our business, we have what we call solutions leaders. So, um, you know, maybe otherwise known as account, account managers or account directors. So we have a team of solutions leaders that go and they're the ones sort of interfacing with the business and building those relationships, as well as our capability leaders or sort of creative directors in that space. Um, you know, building the relationships, talking about design, talking about the value of design. Um, and that's really kind of the role of our leadership team and our, you know, business facing partners within this within the studio. So those are the solution leaders that you call them. And, yeah. and I'm really very curious about this. You're growing as a, as a department and you'll be adding new solutions leaders as you go. Yeah. Where do you get them from and how do you how do you round them up? How do you point them in the right direction? How do you onboard them? Um, so sometimes they come, you know, a lot of times they come from within the business because they already have relationships, um, you know, within the business across that space or they come from the outside world. We always say that the biggest thing, especially for working at a big company, is that onboarding the the first month or so you're listening um, and understanding kind so of. So do you assign them to, to mentors or something at the beginning? Yeah, they have a they have sort of a partner um, in their space that they work with. And, and what, I'm just going back a bit. What what do they bring to the table when they come in? What are you looking for in terms of kind of experience and skill sets and, and sort of approach? You know, I think there's been a lot of conversation about more soft skills. Um, so, you know, cultural intelligence, emotional intelligence, really understanding. It's not about, you know, if you're talking about account people, it's not about making, you know, bringing in a job that is a high profit job and about selling a service, right? We're really talking about selling design and selling the value of design. And, and so that's what their sort of remit is, is to be able to understand the challenges that our business partners are facing and how design can help them solve that problem. So the onboarding starts with this month-long sort of shadowing. Yeah. And are they, are, do you let them loose after that point or are they, uh, does that continue in some way? <laughs> I don't think anyone can be totally let loose. I mean, it took me, I would say, probably six months to a year before I felt comfortable to, um, you know, speak about things. Yeah. It's, it's such a big and complex and complicated company to try to figure out who's who's what how are they connected to somebody um who do they report to what division do they support um so i think a lot of it is you know a lot of it is partnership a lot of it is a sort of entrepreneurial spirit that people have like you have to be you have to have that sort of courage and fearlessness and you know definitely if you're working on the pharmaceutical team Definitely some kind of knowledge of that space and the, the services um, is definitely a, a need in that space. Yeah, well, this, it sounds, sounds extraordinary, I have to say. You know, they, 
the amount of work, how do you keep it organized? You have some kind of workflow system, I'm sure, of some sort. Yes. Is that something that, that you, you yourself have been involved in or is that already there? So um, when they brought me in, they right before they had brought me in, they had an outside agency kind of do a, an audit of what the issues were and what they needed. And they said, well, you need a person and you need a tool. You're the um, person. So I'm the person yeah. and the yeah. tool yeah. was brought in at the same time as me. So I wasn't involved in the sort of requisition of it, um, but it but, was brought but in. the deployment of it you were yes, involved in? Yes, I was oh, lucky responsible you. for the deployment <laughs> Here's the thing, deploy. So, so that went ahead, obviously. That was kind of, that was a good way to get to learn the company, I would imagine, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was great. So we have, um, so as I said, we have a little over 200 people in the studio. We have... Um, about three to 400 projects uh, active at any given time. So it's a lot to keep organized. And so we're very reliant on this tool to help us manage the data. So specifically for resource management, um, it's a very important tool for us to understand, you know, and for me, when a new opportunity is coming in and we're talking about it, it's, that's the first place I'm going to understand whether we have the capacity to take that project on or, you know, whether we need to go and look to staff up to support it or move that project around at all. So um, absolutely critical to me and, and my ability to do the job because with so many people uh, to organize. Um, yeah, to well, you, not straight. only that, of course, it goes without saying that uh, we've all been through the whole and still many ways going through the work from home hybrid thing. Is hybrid the future for you, by the way? So yeah, we're currently, um, J&J is deploying a flex model, which is three days a week in the office, two days a week remote. Are you um, mandating which days they are or is that people nope, can choose? People can choose which day. And so, um, you know, we've all sort of started to come back into the office. It's been really great to see people that I haven't seen in a couple yes, of, of years course. because... Yeah, you've been growing and recruiting, but you've never actually met these people. Um, know, yeah, yeah, so myself, I, I uh, took over overseeing the project management team um, in the fall of last year. And so at the time, we had five project managers on the team. I now have 12 project managers on the team. And so majority of them that I've hired, I had never met in person. Um, and so, you know, the last month or so when we started going into the office and seeing them in person, I was like, so nice to meet you. <laughs> like, gave them all big hugs. And, a little bit you emotional, know, really. It was a, a bit, bit emotional. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. hired maybe 100 people uh, in the last two years. So many of them, we've never met in person. We, they've never seen the office. and. Yeah, it's sort of a weird thing. So it's it's nice to see everyone. I like oh, I like seeing absolutely. my team in person. And these project managers, do these these work with the solution leaders that we referenced earlier. Yeah, they work. So very, they're a support for the solutions leaders. Yeah, they're definitely um, very important partners for all the solutions leaders across the spaces. Well, and I ought to ask, given given the scale of what you've got, how many projects are you handling every year? Um, we have about three to four hundred projects. Um, at any given time. At any given time. So that's not in a year. That's no. at any given time. <laughs> yes. Three to 400. So yeah. kind of multiply that out. Well, how long are the projects? A couple of months each? Uh, depends. We have some projects that... Um, so there's one project that I'm really excited about that came to market on the consumer side a couple months ago, a month or so ago. It's an otoscope, which is something that you can look into your child's ear. It fits over your phone. It connects to an app and it will take a a picture and then compare it with other pictures so that you can help diagnose if your child has a um, ear infection. So that's something that the team was working on kind of when I started about five years ago and now has just come to market. So there are some very long projects. 
And, you know, that's a super exciting project because we worked on um, the product design of it. We worked on the packaging and, and label design. Isn't that wonderful? That's we worked so cool. on the app. So it's really like the perfect example of a really holistic project that the entire team touched. And well, now I'm gonna, I'm and gonna you can ask see you it on question. shelves. Oh, it's, it sounds awesome. <laughs> and I, I, I'm going to ask you this question because this comes up time and time and time again. In fact, I have did a, a webinar about it very recently, one of the roundtables that they did, um, which is about how on earth do you get your... How do you get this attention? How do you get a seat at the table, as it's often put, so that you can bring your creative skills to product development and to to marketing, even before the products even being fully kind of, you know, imagined? Have you got any top tips for how, uh, shall we call it a conventional in-house agency that is more used to working on the marketing and advertising side can get to that point where they can really contribute? I think it's really about the relationship um, at the very highest level. So, you know, we have huge champions within the business that understand what design can really bring to the table. And without that sort of trust and acknowledgement of what design can do, um, I think it's really hard. So I would say, you know, my recommendation is start at the highest levels. Talk about not just the output of design. Like it's not, you know, look how pretty this looks or look how much this you know, drove sales or whatever. It's really look at how we could solve a problem with design. And the Steve Jobs thing about how design is 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 not what it looks like; it's how it works. Yes, it's, it's that thing. Yes, that and understanding, you know, what the the customer or the consumer needs, um, and really solving for that. That's a design problem. I think people don't really think about that. They think, you know, we'll just put something out on the market, but how long it lives and how well it's adopted is sort of how much it solves the people, the consumer's need or customer's need for it. Yeah, I see. Okay. Well, uh, all I can say is I hope other people do are able to take that advice because for my money, the in-house agencies know the brand, they know the customers more than anybody else and and really, you know, so deserve uh, the seat at the, at the, at the table there. Um, just as we wrap up, Carrie, what ambitions have you got then? Where, where do you want to go from here? I mean, <laughs> It's, it's, you know, you make your own opportunities. I'm just kind of wondering what you're, what seeds you're planting now. Well, when I came into the business at um, J&J Design, I told them very clearly that my ambitions were, be, were to be the COO of, of J&J Design. So um, <laughs> as bold as that <laughs> may be Quickly looking was, on LinkedIn to see who the current CEO is. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that's currently my boss. Um, so. <laughs> okay. Um, Will they be listening to this, do you think? She will be listening to this and she knows. And, you know, I think that's really the thing. One of the things that I really appreciate at working at J&J Design is that, first of all, not only could I say that, you know, my first, first month in the job and at the time, the current C the CEO at the time said, got it. Okay, it's my responsibility to make sure you get there and to get you the training and to get you the yeah. experience and whatever. And, you know, and he left and now my, uh, his second in command at the time, now she's the COO, um, you know, and she's very supportive and very focused on that. She knows that but, that's... But giving you the autonomy you need to, to do the job your way and actually yeah. get it right. And make so. sure that I have, you know, all the experiences and connections. That's really, you know, in order to be successful at that kind of job, it is really understanding the business and how they work with us and how we can continue to grow that business. So... She gets me a lot of exposure to those conversations. Um, I'm very lucky. Yeah. So 
that's my, you know, that's my, that's my plan. I think in whatever case, um, I really want to help lead a design organization, um, and, and sort of bring that kind of thinking and, and understanding to, to continue to support design and be a champion of it. Well, champion, you definitely are creative enabler, I called you at the beginning. And I think, I think we can all completely understand why. It's been fantastic to hear your story. You're clearly about the mission of the people you work with. They've got to be doing something that you want and you can clearly bring their creative visions to life. And uh, I think that you have a very terrific role. And I think that COO opportunity, sorry, not opportunity. I mean, that COO ambition uh, is definitely one that's worthwhile. So I really wish you luck with that, Carrie. Thanks so much. Thanks, Robert. Well, I just want to also thank uh, Emily Foster of our wonderful partners, IHAF, and my producer, Amy McNamara, for helping set up these podcasts and getting the recordings to happen and coordinating everything. And also the lovely folks at EKCS for handling the editing of this podcast that you're listening to now. Thank you for listening. All the right.